Welcome to the War from Boise, Idaho. This is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, send it to me, uh, box13 at greatdetectives.net. And uh, before we get started, I I'm going to kind of change the way I do listener notes. I've done a couple of uh, larger episodes when we were getting more listener notes and uh, comments in terms of Adam's mailbag, but I'm getting a little less, and so I'll just address these on the show until we have an increase of comments. And I received this comment from Brady. I enjoy the show, and I love when you post speeches and news from the era. It gives us a clear understanding of what people were thinking and debating at the time. Well, thanks so much, uh, Brady. I appreciate it. I've probably been a little um, lax in terms of posting uh, news stories, just because we have a little less uh, broadcast real news from early on in the war. And there was so much uh, good drama. Plus, uh, I kind of had Monday for uh, propaganda and news, and we're uh, going to move away from the 1942 stuff soon. And so I was wanting to get as many episodes of This Is War played as I wanted. But uh, that said, um, I think it's time to take a look at some news and newsmen. Though this one's in a dramatized form, it's actually quite informative and a good look at the life of, sol of uh, members of the press during the war. The title of the show is Soldiers of the Press, and we'll be playing quite a few episodes. And we'll even have a few featuring uh, stories about... Uh, Walter Cronkite and uh, other famous journalists. These two that we start off with are, are a little less well-known, but still I think you'll find this very uh, informative. So here are the first two episodes of Soldiers of the Press from November 9th and November 16th of 1942. Soldiers of the Press. shoulder with the men on the fighting fronts of the world go the correspondents of the United Press. You will find them peering down from the bellies of bombers over New Guinea or Kiel, scanning swirling actions in Egypt from the scant cover of foxholes or from baking, bruising tanks. You will find them on the bridges and sky controls of cruisers and carriers off Midway and Wake and Malta, or sharing a lookout's watch aboard a convoy ship, heading blindly through the Arctic dark for Murmansk. With the troops they accompany, these correspondents face every peril of war, gunfire, capture, and pestilence, hardship, tension, and tedium. Theirs is a vital wartime task to observe and report to you developments on the battlefronts. Report them clearly, completely, quickly. Among the hundreds of United Press correspondents fulfilling this important mission is Henry T. Gorell. Our story of his recent adventures is the story behind a communique issued by United States Heavy Bombardment Air Force Base somewhere in the Middle East. In an attack on enemy shipping in Navarino Bay, planes of the U.S. Army Air Force damaged two large supply-laden cargo vessels, causing violent explosions attended by fires. That was the terse account of that action contained in the official announcement. But to United Press correspondent Henry Gorell, there was much more to the story than that. For Gorell rode in one of those bombers over Navarino Bay. Yes, I was in one of those big four-motored consolidated B-24s and saw them give the Germans a taste of America's fighting power. And I can tell you that every American has a right to be proud of the men and machines of war we're turning against our enemies. But that's getting ahead of my story. 
You see, I've been covering the war since it began. I've seen German planes and tanks and infantry roll across Poland, the Low Countries, France, Eastern Europe. I accompanied the British Expeditionary Force that attempted to go to the aid of Greece, and I retreated with them to Egypt under a hail of bombs from Nazi Stukas. More recently, I've been stationed at a United States Heavy Bombardment Air Force base in the Middle East. Can't tell you just where. The one thing I'd been hoping for was an opportunity to go along when American bombers and American bombs blasted some of the swagger out of Hitler's supermen. Well, my chance came unexpectedly late one afternoon. I was in my quarters pounding away on my typewriter when... Okay, come in, come in. Are you Henry Correll of the United Press? Oh, hi there, soldier. Yes, I'm Correll. What can I do for you? Major Parham's compliments, sir. He asked me to deliver this message to you and to tell you it's urgent. Oh, thanks. Uh, just a minute. Let's see if there's reply. Arrangements completed. Correspondence accompany massed bombing force attack mission. Man, this is what I've been waiting for. Report to briefing room at 4.50. Hey, that gives me just about 20 minutes. Uh, tell the major I'll be there with bells. Yes, sir. Oh, Ed... They finally set it up for some correspondence to go along on a mass bombing raid. Look, I got a story in the mail here. It's complete. See that it gets to the censor's office pronto, will you? Sure thing. Good luck, Hank. And Joe, you left the fork over those wool socks you borrowed. When I reached the operations office, I found the briefing room packed with young, alert American flyers. Enough of them to indicate that the show was going to be a big one. Their faces were grimly serious. They were listening to a lieutenant who was pointing out their objectives on a huge map. I recognized the outlines of the coast of Greece. The lieutenant said, Your target is a concentration of enemy shipping in Navarino Bay. In here. Intelligence informs us the Germans have considerable anti-aircraft strength concentrated in the areas marked in red. Here and here. Now, you'll undoubtedly encounter considerable flight. The enemy also has a force of fighter craft in the area, so you'll have to be on the lookout for pursuits. The order in which you'll take off and go over the target is listed on the blackboard outside the operations room. While the bomber crews assembled additional data on weather, the types of anti-aircraft and pursuits to be encountered, I inspected that blackboard. It was a screwy-looking list. Planes affectionately named the Jersey Jerks, Snow White, the Witch, and a half a dozen tough dwarfs. The Witch was scheduled to take off last. Her pilot was Lieutenant Glade Jorgensen. I knew him slightly. A blonde, husky, square-jawed trombone player from American Fork, Utah. As the crews began moving out of the briefing line to the line of jeeps waiting outside, I singled him out. Hello, Lieutenant. Think perhaps you'll remember me, Henry Gorell of the United Press. I'd like to make this trip with your crew. Gorell? Oh, sure, I remember you. You went with that British convoy to Malta a while back. So you want to go over with me, eh? Right. Look, have you had a good view of the blackboard there? Yeah, I did. We're to be last over the target, you know. The Jerry's will have everything they can throw at us in action by the time we go in. Yes, I know, but I'd still like to make the hop in your plane. May be a bit more dangerous, but it's a sense to provide the best view of the show. Like that, huh? Like that. Okay, I suppose you know your business. You'll fly with the witch, then. Swell. Well, you may as well come along with me and get acquainted with the rest of the crew. I meet them, nine and all. Every man trained in teamwork like members of a champion football squad. There's Norman Frost, a former Miami bellboy, third gunner on our B-24. Second Lieutenant Peter L. Vlahakis of Newark, New Jersey, our navigator. Co-pilot Lieutenant Robert T. Goldberg of Blooming Prairie, Minnesota. 
Bombardier, 2nd Lieutenant Henry M. Spanger of Mount Airy, North Carolina. Staff Sergeant Joseph T. Byrne from La Crosse, Wisconsin, our radio operator and a gunner. Tail Gunner, Staff Sergeant Donald S. Allen of New York. Marvin Breeding, armored gunner from Dallas, Texas. And Technical Sergeant Joseph E. Farmer of St. Charles, Virginia. We pile into the waiting jeeps, which jolt us out to where the big bombers are moored at dispersal points around the field. I spot the witch, looking anything but warlike in her coat of salmon pink camouflage. Her name is lettered boldly in her sides. Ground crews already have her motors turning over. I can feel a tightening sensation in my throat and stomach. I'm handed a cumbersome, heavy flying suit, life jacket, parachute, and oxygen mask. And we're about ready to take off. Duchess, the little dog mascot of the Jersey Jerks, is going to have to stay behind. She's done a lot of flying since they found her in Lakeland, Florida. But there are no oxygen masks for dogs. It's our turn now, and we scramble aboard. Well, Gorel, we must be getting near the coast of Greece. Can you feel us start to climb? Jorgensen must be going up to our bombing level. We're putting on altitude, all right. My ears just pop. <laughs> you better get your life jacket adjusted and put on your helmet. By the way, the earphones inside the helmet are connected with the interphone. You'll be able to keep tabs on everything that's going on. That's well. Uh, this way it goes on? That's it. And here's your speaker. Well, I'll have to be getting back to my station now. Bye. Thanks, and good luck. Hello? Hello? Am I cut in an interphone all right? Your president accounted for, Gorel. We're climbing several hundred feet a minute. Altitude now 10,000 feet. Put on your oxygen masks. Now look, I can see grease. Those peninsulas look like jagged fingers. You're right. Gunners, better fire a few practice bursts. We're getting in close. Okay, top, sir. Tail two, sir. All set here. Look sharp below and to our right, Gorel. Those pencil stubs are the German ships. There goes the flak. See those white puffballs ahead? It won't be long now. Kane to Jorgensen. Pursuit's approaching. I say them, sir. Three of them in our starboard quarter. Now we've lost them. The Jersey Jerk's having a go at them. Get set, men. Snow White has dropped her bombs. We're going in now. Navigated to Bombardier. Target coming up. Shall I open the doors to the bomb bay? Okay, Pete. Open them. Your ship, Hank, and make them count. We'll be on target in about 7.0 seconds. Level her off. Steady now. Three points starboard. Hold her steady. There. Bombs away. They're right on the target. Boy, look at those explosions. There come a couple of pursuits coming up from about 15,000 feet. Let them have it, boys. Altitude. I'll try and shake him. Here comes another one on our tail. For God's sakes, open fire. I got him, sir. You got him, boss. You got that plane? Yes, sir. I'm sure I did. Yes, there he goes now. He's on fire. I... I've been hit, sir. You hurt bad, Frost? Yes, sir. I'm afraid I am. I'm bleeding pretty bad. But I got him, sir. Fine business. Hold tight. I'll come back as soon as I can and help you. May as well chuck your oxygen masks. Our oxygen tank's been hit. up now, sir. Good, good. We're heading for home. This is Gorel. I'll go back and give Frost a hand. 
I make my way back to the gunner's turret. I have to take off my parachute harness, life jacket, and sheepskin coat to negotiate the narrow catwalk in the bomb bay. It's Frost, our second gunner, who's been hit. Our waist gunner already is bending over him. Together we unlace his shoe, cut his trouser leg, and rip off his sock. It's a knee wound. We apply a tourniquet. My fingers are numb with cold. We're still at high altitude. My first aid kit's flaked with frost, and the iodine swab's so frozen I have to breathe on it to thaw it out. After we've made the second gunner comfortable, breeding, the waist gunner turns to me and says, Would you mind looking at my leg, sir? I think I've been hit, too. I take a quick look at it. He has a flesh wound in his ankle, but he's kept quiet until we're sure the second gunner's all right. The sun's been setting as we work, and I suddenly look out to realize that it's dark. It's a reassuring feeling. Jorgensen's trying to get up speed. He tells us two superchargers have been shot away. The automatic steering gear is out. The self-sealing gas tank's been hit, and an aileron's been knocked off. Engineer thinks we also may have a flat tire. But where I sit, I count 25 cannon and bullet holes inside the plane. The crew adds up its score. We got another German plane in addition to the ship down by Frost. Technical Sergeant Farmer turns up. He's been hit by shrapnel, but luckily suffered only a scratch under his right eye. Everyone begins to relax. Jorgensen tells us we're getting close to our base. Everybody smiles. Our radio is barking out into the dark. Wounded aboard. Have medical aid ready. Wounded aboard. Have medical aid ready. Searchlights finally catch us. We flash the recognition signal. When the gun batteries below hold their fire. Our wheels touch ground. Everyone is tense. But our tire isn't flat after all. A welcome feeling. An ambulance is on hand. Doctors look at Frost's knee and say he'll be all right soon. I'm back with the story of the first mass bombing raid by American planes on which American correspondents were permitted to accompany our planes. Everyone is tired. Everyone's glad to be back. And everyone has work to do. The crew piloted jeeps to return to operations headquarters to make out their reports. Mentally, I start putting the lead for my story into shape. Yes, the official communique said merely, in an attack on enemy shipping in Navarino Bay, planes of the U.S. Army Air Force damaged two large supply-laden cargo vessels causing violent explosions attended by fires. But to correspondent Henry T. Gorell, it was the story of the heroism of a former bellboy from Miami who kept firing in spite of a severe wound until the attacking German pursuit plunged earthward. A story of American-built planes that took all the Nazis could give and came home safely. By braving enemy gunfire, by accompanying our troops, our ships, and our planes into battle at the risk of their lives and freedom, Gorell and other correspondents of the United Press enable American radio listeners and newspaper readers to know the facts, the truth of important war actions, clearly, completely, quickly. They bring you the stories behind the headlines. So listen for United Press News on the air. Look for it in your local newspaper. It is your guarantee of the world's best coverage of the world's biggest news. Soldiers of the Press. 
been on raids with Marine Colonel Meriday Edson. He has been shelled by destroyers, cruisers, and submarines. He has endured with the rest of us our daily bombing raids. He has lived a Marine's life under jungle conditions. Robert C. Miller is a good Marine. That is a Marine's tribute to a newspaper man. They are the words of Major General Alexander A. Vandergrift, commander of U.S. Marine forces at Guadalcanal. Robert C. Miller, soldier of the press, is a United Press war correspondent accredited to the United States Pacific Fleet. Disregarding all personal risks, Miller accompanied American forces, which launched the first great Allied offensive in the Pacific. He landed with them on the hostile beach of Guadalcanal early last August, and ignoring warnings of grave danger and recommendations that he withdraw, chose to remain there during the first six bitter weeks of U.S. occupation of those inhospitable islands. We recreate for you his story of the adventure, the action, the heroism that lie behind the official communiques, as Miller recorded it for United Press in his Guadalcanal notebook. Yes, I'm a war correspondent. Six months ago, I was working in the Los Angeles Bureau of United Press, where I got my assignments neatly written out on a slip of paper, or from a UP bureau manager who would tell me, grab yourself a cab and beat it over to 20th and Pine Streets. Some dame has barricaded herself in her apartment and is threatening to shoot the cops. With a correspondent assigned to the fleet, it's different. You never know where you're going or what your story will be. In fact, you may accept a three-weeks assignment with a task force and come back with nothing to show for it but a pair of sea legs. Then again, you may find all hell breaking loose around your ears at any minute. I had arrived in Honolulu, complete with uniform and a green armband with a large white C, which marked me for war correspondent. I was itching for a chance to see some action, but for weeks nothing happened. Then one afternoon, I was called to the phone by a Navy officer who told me to report to him in sea gear within the hour. I tossed my clothes together hurriedly and soon was clambering up the ladder of a warship. Your credentials, sir? Oh, certainly. Here you are. Miller's the name. Robert C. Miller of United Press. Uh-huh. Let's see now. Well, these seem to be in order. Oh, yes, I have you listed. This way, please, and I'll take you to the officer of the deck. Thanks. I'm right with you. Here we are. Uh, sir, this is Robert Miller of United Press, accredited to the fleet and assigned to this unit of the task force. His credentials are in order, sir. How do you do, Miller? I'm glad to know you. I'm glad to have you with us. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be with you, too. Uh, by the way, I wonder if it's possible yet to give me some idea of what sort of an assignment I'm on. It's my first time out, you know. I'm sorry, Miller, but all I can tell you at this point is that we are a task force on a secret mission. But... It might make you feel better to know that the chances are you'll see some action. You'll be given full details in due time. Here you are, Miller. These are your quarters. Supply officer will look in on you shortly to fit you out with steel helmet, life jacket, gas mask, and other gear. Well, we're getting underway. I'll have to be off now, but I'll look in on you again after mess. Best of luck, Miller. Thanks for everything. Good luck to you, too, sir. He's hoping your predictions pan out that we'll see action. For days, the task force plowed through the Pacific under a blazing sun. An air of tense expectancy filled the ship. The equator was crossed, and Miller was transformed from a polywog to a shellback. It's a ceremony performed with barrel staves for those aboard who are entering the southern hemisphere for the first time. Miller wrote the next day's entries in his notebook standing up. The task force put in at a South Pacific island for supplies and reinforcements. Speculation mounted. 
Then Miller wrote this entry in his notebook. They came today. Additional reinforcements. What a sight. Ship after ship popped out of the horizon this afternoon until the whole ocean seemed a mass of ships. There's no doubt about it now. Something big is in the wind. I've been put aboard a transport loaded with Marines. I'm all ears. It's eight bells. The captain is to make an announcement over the public address system. Gentlemen, you're all aware from the strength of our forces that we're bound on an important mission. I now am at liberty to tell you that our objective is in the Solomon Islands. Our mission is to drive out the occupying Japanese forces and plant the United States flag over those strategic bases. Details of the attack will be explained to all battalion commanders tonight in the ready room. Won't be long now. The murky haze is providing a welcome screen for the invasion armada. Everyone seems to be in good spirits. There's little conversation about tomorrow. Nearly everyone's talking about home. If they aren't talking about it, they're thinking about it. I've noticed quite a few Marines topside just leaning over the rail and thinking. General quarters sounds at 4 a.m. Hell of an hour to go to war. We have steak, potatoes, and eggs for breakfast. I notice everyone is feeding himself forcibly, but everyone fills up. The next meal may be a long time coming. All officers are decked out in green, indistinguishable from a private's uniform, and all insignia of rank have been hidden. I understand the Japs give ten extra points for shooting an officer. Well, I'm putting my green armband in my pocket. Who knows, they may give 15 points extra for bagging a correspondent. I join a group of Marine officers on the signal deck. Hello, Miller. Have a nice breakfast? Yeah, just swell. I couldn't taste anything, but I can tell there's something in my stomach. <laughs> Butterflies, maybe, or possibly my heart. <laughs> well, don't worry. You're not the only one with the jitters. It's this waiting that gets you. You'll be all right when the shooting starts. Yeah, this is all going off too smoothly to suit me. Nope, it doesn't turn out to be a trap. Say, I can make out a dark outline off there to the right. That's right. That's our objective, Guadalcanal. Hey, look up ahead there. A light. Yeah, it's the signal from the ship ahead for us to anchor. The unbelievable has happened. We're in and the Japs haven't spotted us. Hey, what's that? Oh, relax. That's one of our own planes catapulting into the air. Brother, there's going to be another blitz like Pearl Harbor, but this time the Japs will be on the receiving end. There's the curtain raiser. The show's on. Man, look at those explosions on the beach. There go our boats and tank lighters over the side. Let's go, man. Two loaded. Cut away. Over the side. Listen to those leathernecks whooping up. Okay, Miller, it's no concert. Down the rope ladder and enter the boat with you. Me? Okay, I'm right with you. This business of loading reminds me of the subways. You pack them in, slam the door, and ready for the next one, huh? Landing boats circle the ships, waiting for the zero hour, while our barrage mounts to even greater fury. Finally, the bombardment lets up, and the first boats race shoreward. I watch through glasses as the first of them hit the beach, and the tiny figures race inland. I notice that the ones that fall get up and run on, a reassuring indication that possibly there's not much enemy resistance. Now it's our turn. The bow of the landing boat rises high as the coxswain guns are wide open and aims for the palm-studded beach. We catch sight of a signal indicating landing successful. I'm poised in the bow of the boat, surveying landing possibilities when we run aground. Someone gives me a shove, and I land waist-deep in the surf. There's a precarious split second as I waver between a landing and a dunking. With a magnificent recovery, I manage to stumble up to the beach and dive for the nearest thicket. Good lesson for a newspaper man in that first landing. 
Never get in the bow of a landing boat. It puts you in the embarrassing position of leading the charge up the beach, totally unarmed. August 8th. Night has settled down over the rugged islands for the second time since the Marines set foot on its soil. Nerves are taut. Japanese warships are reported moving in on Guadalcanal. Everyone knows the Japs are going to attack. The convoy rides at anchor in Lunga Bay, spewing out its troops and supplies for the Solomon's invasion. Twenty miles away, the little American and Australian fleet stands guard. Night falls, black, sudden, tropical night. A Japanese plane drones overhead, and the dark is cut through with flares. Miller watches from Guadalcanal Beach. In his own words... In the cold, drizzling rain, I stand and watch the grand and terrible night battle between United States and Australian warships and a Japanese fleet. Almost at the instant the flares spread their cold glare across the black of the sea, mushrooms of yellow flame belch out of the west. Seconds later, the first rumble of the cannonading reaches the beach where the Marines and I stand silently, watching the warships pour their tons of steel at each other. Searchlights run their long white fingers through the night. We stand awestruck. Suddenly, an Australian cruiser, the Canberra, bursts into flame with a roar of explosions that drowns out the guns. Other explosions follow from other ships. We can't tell whose. There is a tremendous roar from the eastern end of the strait, and someone shouts that the Astoria and Vincennes, American cruisers, are afire. They're going to their deaths at full speed, straight into the face of the enemy. Minutes seem like hours. Finally, the gunfire dwindles, stops. Flares sizzle out in the sea. The battle is over, and the most important convoy, possibly, that the United States ever send out has been saved. The Japanese have been beaten, and the Marines are on Guadalcanal. Next day, Miller established what he described as the first United Press Bureau on Guadalcanal, an assortment of crates and boxes of captured Japanese foodstuffs, which were moved into headquarters tent. Of his handiwork, Miller said... It's not much to look at, but it does give support to your correspondent's typewriter and backsides. Later that afternoon, Miller and Sherman Montrose, a photographer for Acme News Pictures, accepted an opportunity to accompany a patrol into the jungle. Hey, hey, Miller, that patrol's moving on ahead. Come on, let's get a move on. Oh, that's the trouble with you photographers, Monty. You've no curiosity. You want somebody to strike a pose for you so you can click your shutter and move on. Well, what do you see that's so interesting? I don't see anything here that'll enable you to burn up the cables. Look, off left there. Huh? That looks like a couple of abandoned Jap tents. Come on, let's go over. Oh, uh, nuts. I got a camera full of pictures of Jap tents. Here's a Jap machine gun. Looks like somebody left in a hurry. Say, Monty, there's a dead Jap in this tent. Hey, Monty, he ain't dead. That Jap is alive. Hey, Lieutenant. Hey, hey, you guys with the guns. We got a live Jap prisoner here. Well... That's the way Montrose and I managed to capture the first Jap prisoner taken on Guadalcanal Island, amply reinforced by a company of Marines. I have to admit, it scared me out of ten years' growth. But before Francis McCarthy arrived at Guadalcanal to relieve me six weeks later, that experience seemed tame. I managed to be shot at, and fortunately missed, by just about every weapon the Japanese possess, with the possible exception of one or two experimental jobs that they hadn't brought down to the Guadalcanal proving ground. Included were all types of naval craft, 75-millimeter artillery, machine guns, both light and heavy, mortars, also light and heavy. Then there were bombs, in sizes ranging from 1,000-pounders to the 250-pound so-called grass cutters. But my personal nomination for the height of human misery is to lie in the jungle, wringing wet, in a tropical downpour, while snipers' bullets whine past your head or plop themselves in the trees near you. 
you get the feeling that those 25 caliber rifle bullets have been cast in Japan for you individually and are being delivered personally by a little fella high in the timber above, behind, or beside you. You never do find out just where the hell he is. Yes, in the words of Major General Alexander A. Vandergrift, Robert C. Miller is a good Marine. And Robert C. Miller is likewise a good reporter, conscientious, accurate, true to the finest traditions of American journalism. He is one of hundreds of such men on the worldwide staff of the United Press. We will be back soon with another of these stories of the correspondents who gather and write the news for this station. Be sure to listen. And meanwhile, remember to listen for United Press News on the air. Look for it in your favorite newspaper. It's your guarantee of the world's best coverage of the world's biggest news. Welcome back. And the funny thing is that um, I remember during the Iraq War that they talked about embedded uh, journalists like it was something new, but uh, this illustrates that uh, this type of thing was going on in the Second World War. And I particularly like the kind of wry humor that was used by the uh, uh, reporter in the second episode that made it really interesting and uh, a great look at his personality and style as well as how he reported. That will do it for today. If you uh, have a comment, email me box13 at greatdetectives.net. I welcome your story or that of loved ones who served during World War II. Ken Curlin provides our opening theme music, kencurlin.com. I am your host, Adam Graham. This uh, series is provided as a service of the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio, greatdetectives.net.